Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 7. In the 1952 World Series, the Brooklyn Dodgers were leading the Yankees three games to two. And they were leading two to one in the potential series-clinching game, game six. Yogi Berra tied the score with a home run off of Billy Lowe's, and then the next batter singled and advanced to second on a balk by Lowe's. And the go-ahead, uh, the go-ahead run is now in scoring position. And so Lowe's of the Dodgers pitched to Rasky, who grounded a ball right back to him. But Lowe's missed it, and the Yankees scored the go-ahead run, and they went on to win the game, and then they went on to win Game 7 to win the World Series. When the Dodgers pitcher was asked about the, the simple grounder that he missed that could have prevented the loss, he said, I never saw the ball. The sun got in my eyes. No one wants to take responsibility for their own actions. It's easier to blame something outside of us. It's easier to blame the sun. When a project at work fails or uh, gets delivered late, we pass the blame on another department or another person. If you ever worked at a shop or a factory, you know the the shift to blame is the is the the night shift. The problem is of blame shifting is as old as Eden. Remember Adam said, it was the wife that you gave me. Or Aaron in Exodus 32, Moses comes down from the mountain and says, what have you done? And he says, you know how the people, they're prone to evil and, and they said, make a God for us. So I told them to bring their gold to me and I threw it in the fire and out came this calf. When uh, verse 4 actually says that he fashioned it in his, with his own hand. So he's, he needs a little help in the lying department, but he's making excuses. He's passing the blame to the people. Or Saul in 1 Samuel 15. I have carried out the command of the Lord, he says to, to Samuel. And Samuel says, then what is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? And Saul says, the people brought them. They spared the best of them in order to sacrifice them to the Lord. And I only spared this king. And so he passes the blame on to the people. These are such obvious excuses. But when it comes to problems in our lives, we're not much different, are we? Let me ask you a couple of questions. Why is there conflict in your church? Why is your marriage not like what it should be? Our first response tends to be, you know, the congregation is immature, or my wife is going through some things right now. The, the immediate response is one to point the finger, to pass the blame. What about this? Why is your spiritual life stagnant right now? We can have all sorts of reasons why we're not where we should be, like health challenges or financial pressures or pressures in the ministry, loneliness. But we have a hard time pointing inward, pointing toward ourselves. And essentially, we follow our father Adam in blaming our problems on something outside of ourselves. 
And if you've spent any time discipling or counseling, you've heard all kinds of reasons for why people have spiritual problems. Another way to, to call reasons is excuses. A teenager might think that his problem will go away if he has different circumstances. See, the problem is outside of him. So if I can just be in a different home, right? If I had different parents, if I had a different school, if I had a different uh, set of siblings, things would be different. But once he moves out of the house, he finds out that he has a lot of the same problems because of what's going on inside. He has problems with authorities, with teachers, with his boss, with his pastor, with the government, with his landlord. A husband might think that his problem in his marriage is his wife. But then he remarries. And he finds that the same ugly conflict follows him. Because his heart followed him. We're constantly looking for reasons for why we are the way that we are. And the easiest way to pivot away from the real problem is to look outside of us. We want to blame it on the environment. Try to find a solution by changing our setting. Maybe if I just get out of this difficult setting and go somewhere else, then things won't be like they are here. Sometimes we even just avoid people. We move towards isolation because the problem is with them. The problem might be the result of our circumstances or our upbringing or our government or because of Satan. And in some cases, we can pass the blame even to God like Adam did. Or the man with one talent who blamed it on his master who said, I knew, master, that you were an exacting judge who reaps where he does not sow and gather where he does not lay down. And so we're looking for reasons. And I think especially this is true when it comes to the darkest, ugliest realities, the sinful things that we do. We find, we find it hard to believe that corruption could come from inside of us, that that kind of ugliness would be from within inside of us. And so we look for a reason, an excuse for the trouble that explains our circumstances. We need someone or something to blame these things on. Like the drunkard who blames his, his drunkenness on, his, on, on the alcohol itself or on his some kind of... Um, some, some kind of physical makeup. Or like the pastor who has to resign because of a disqualification and blames his circumstances on being too busy, or the church didn't support me, or my wife was cold and distant, or I had a financial crisis. And if it's possible for us to quickly pass the blame when we sin, is it not also possible for those whom we counsel to use the same kinds of rationale? And so, if we're going to help people change, if we're going to be instruments of change, we have to recognize the main culprit of wickedness. When Jesus talks about the corruption and its source, He doesn't move to a set of steps in order to change how they are. He first unmasks what's going on under the surface. And that is the wickedness of the human heart. He pulls away the veneer of self-righteousness and exposes what is inside. 
This morning, I want to suggest to you that the only causative factor to a person's evil is his own sinful heart. The only causative factor to a person's evil is his own sinful heart. Let me read for you Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. The Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him when they had come from Jerusalem and had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. The Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? And he said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men, neglecting the commandment of God you hold to the tradition of men. He was also saying to them, You are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, If a man says to his father or mother, Whatever I have that would help you is Corban, that is to say, given to God, you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down, and you do many things such as that. After he called the crowd to him again, he began saying to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him. But the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. When he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples questioned him about the parable. And he said to them, Are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him, because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach, and is eliminated? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he was saying, That which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. The only causative factor to a person's evil is his own sinful heart. Jesus exposes what is going on with the Pharisees here in verses 1 through 23. And he begins in verses 1 through 13 by showing that our greatest need is not external cleansing. Our greatest need is not changing of habits. It's more than that. And so Jesus challenges their motives in verses 1 through 8. The Pharisees love to try to trap Jesus at this point in the ministry They have already plotted for his murder, according to chapter 3 and verse 6. And the Pharisees come and say that the disciples need to wash their hands. Ceremonially, they need to wash their hands. 
their complaint was not directed at the disciples exactly, but, but more at Jesus. They wanted to prove that he had no authority to show that he didn't understand the Old Testament. He wasn't following the Old Testament. Of course, Jesus sees right through their challenge and shows where the real problem is. Notice how he deals with them. In verses 6 through 8, he points them to Scripture. He says, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. So Jesus is showing that there's something going on that may look okay on the outside, but inside it is corrupt. The Pharisees and the scribes were like the hypocrites in Isaiah's day. They were guilty of a heart that was divorced from their action. And notice the application in verse 8. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the the tradition of men. In other words, a rabbinic law that was once designed to prevent them from disobeying God was now a way for them to avoid obeying God in other areas. You set up these rules that you think make you spiritual, and it actually prevents you from doing the thing that you're commanded to do. And he illustrates that in verses 9-13. through He illustrates that their traditions caused them to disregard God's Word. Notice in verse 10, he points them to Scripture again. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. So there's two commandments there. One positively stated, one negatively stated. And then he applies it to them in verses 11 through 13. What they've done here is they've set their money aside as Corbin. Like this big, huge pile of money, it's all tied up in in a separate account that cannot be touched because it's Corbin. And this Corbin sounds good because the word Corbin means designated for God's purposes. It's set aside for God's purposes, and God's, and Jesus says, but then when you're commanded to honor your father and mother, when it's time to help out mom and dad, you don't have any money left because you've set it aside for God's purposes. When God's purposes is for you to do this, honor your father and mother. And so, verse 13, you have invalidated the word of God. You've invalidated these clear commands of what you are to do. The center of the matter is what did the Pharisees and scribe really desire? Did they desire to please God or to serve their own interests? Our greatest need is not external cleansing. Secondly, we see in verses 14 through 23 that our greatest spiritual danger is not outside of us. Jesus says in verse 15 that nothing outside the man, which there is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him. Now, clearly the disciples are confused because there's a couple things going on here. Jesus is talking about uh, Jewish law, for sure, because the, the text helps us in that way. You see that he was declaring all food clean in verse 19. But I think there's more to it than that. What the, what the Pharisees and scribes were thinking about were all these ceremonial rituals. 
And Jesus is saying, listen, unwashed hands and eating certain kinds of food are not inherently defiling. Your fellowship with God is not hindered by what your hands are like or what food you're eating because physical eating cannot defile you. But it's broader than that because of the list that we see in verses 21 and 22. This list doesn't have to do with only unwashed hands ceremonially and ceremonial, ceremonial hand, uh, unwashed hands and also with eating of food. It includes things like fornication and theft and murder and adultery. And so Jesus is saying, there's nothing outside of you that can defile you. Certainly this is true with food, but also with other things. Spiritual rituals and external exercises cannot cleanse you, and spiritual corruption is going to come from within you, not from outside. In other words, external rebellion is always because of internal corruption. And Jesus illustrates this principle in verses 21 through 23. All these evil things are not because of ignoring tradition or from some external corruption that happened. They're because of a wicked heart. Notice the direction of flow. It is from within. So it's internal to external. The Pharisees and scribes are focused on the external. The disciples seeming trying to like, I don't understand fully. And Jesus is saying it's, it's coming from within. All the corruption that happens is coming from within. From the heart flow things like evil thoughts, evil actions, right? Things like, like we read here, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, and evil words, slander. And so Jesus gives a sampling of the various kinds of sin. Now that doesn't mean that we are immune from watching corruption or hanging around corrupt people. But if we think that's the main reason, the main culprit for our wickedness, then we're looking in the wrong place. The source of our wickedness is our heart. The direction of flow is from internal to external. The only causative factor to a person's evil is his own sinful heart. Now, you might be thinking of a couple examples in Scripture where it seems like that's not the case. Like in 2 Corinthians 4, where it says that Satan blinds the minds of unbelievers. Or Mark chapter 9, where Jesus warns about those who cause a little one to stumble. That sounds pretty causative. But let me respond in three ways. One, with Scripture. Two, with an example from judgment. And, and then three, with, with another example that we'll, we'll think through. First, from Scripture. Turn over to James chapter 1. We know from Proverbs 4, 23, that we should watch over our hearts with all diligence, for from it, from, from them, from the heart, flow the issues of life. And here's another text 
that I think shows that the, the only causative factor is our own sinful heart, the only causative factor to our evil. Verse 13, James 1.13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. James 4.1 is similar. It says, what is the source of quarrels and fights among you? Is it something from outside? No, he says it's the, 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 the members that wage war within you. You are drawn away and enticed by your own lusts. No one's forcing you from outside. No activity from outside can force you to do anything that's opposed to God. Second, second response to Satan blinding unbelievers, which is true, and people who cause little ones to stumble would be in judgment. Who's going to take responsibility for your sin on the judgment day? You alone will stand before God for your sin, and you can't say, well, the devil blinded me. You can't say, this person caused me to stumble. Because while they will have culpability, there will be judgment for Satan and for those who caused you to stumble. You will also take responsibility for the sin that you chose to do. You can't say, I, you know, I was missing a limb, or I had a rough childhood, or I had a, a bad school, or a difficult government, or a rotten congregation. And, and this may sound harsh, but, but you won't even be able to blame your sin on the parents who abused you. Because you are the source of the evil that you do. And you won't be able to blame God because verse 13 says, God cannot be tempted and neither does he tempt anyone. We can't say, well, you know, it's all, it was all in your plan, God. And we will be responsible for our own sin because we are the source of our own evil. So while Satan is a major contributing factor to our sin and authorities... Corrupt authorities who influence us are contributing factors to our evil. Your heart chooses to do what it wants. If this is true, it kind of causes us to put our guard down a little bit on the things outside of us. But what it should do is heighten our concern for what is inside of us. Consider the great corruption of the human heart. The third way I would respond, Scripture, judgment, and then an example. What if we stripped all of the externals away? Let's just do a little experiment here in our minds. What if we stripped everything away? Would we still sin? Imagine what it would be like if the worst factors for sin were taken away. Think of a, a, a Garden of Eden-like state where there is no evil world system that is opposed to God. There's no corrupt government. 
There's no corrupt friends, a perfect upbringing, a perfect environment. Can you imagine a place like that? Could someone sin in that kind of environment? Well, certainly we already have an example in Genesis 3. Satan tempted Eve and Adam to sin. But what if a person had it even better than Adam and Eve? What if a person's parents were genuine believers in Jesus Christ and desired what was best for their children? What if that person were born into a community of people who are worshipers of God and who loved God with all their hearts, souls, and minds? What if this child was born into a world where Satan and his demons had no influence on them? Well, that's better than Eden. What if this child was born into a world that was completely different than the one in which we live because it's not corrupted by the world or external wickedness or Satan? And what if this child were born into a land where the government were, rule, were, were ruled by the greatest of all kings, one who, who loved God with all of his heart and wanted to serve him? It sounds like a dream, doesn't it? But what I'm describing for you is the millennial kingdom. Turn over to Revelation chapter 20. Think with me now. At the beginning of the millennial kingdom, every single person will be a child of God. They will be born again. That's one of the requirements to enter into the kingdom. John chapter 3. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born again. This is what it's going to be like at the, at the beginning of the millennial kingdom. Everybody there will be in one of four categories. So the first category is Old Testament saints. Old Testament saints who have been raised from the dead and now given their glorified bodies and they're living at the beginning of the millennial kingdom. The second category of people are church saints. Church saints who have been raptured or raised from the dead and now given their glorified bodies at the beginning of the millennial kingdom. The third category of people are tribulation martyrs or people who have died during the tribulation. Those people will also be resurrected and given their glorified bodies at the beginning of the millennial kingdom. And the fourth category of people are tribulation survivors. People who made it to the end of the tribulation without dying. That is, believers who made it to the end without dying. This would include the 144,000 Jews and presumably many others, Jews and Gentiles. In short, the millennial kingdom will be made up of all believers from Adam to the end of the tribulation. Every single believer who ever lived will be a part of this millennial kingdom. And where will Satan be? Look at verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand, and he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. 
After these things, he must be released for a short time. So at the beginning of the millennial kingdom, you have all believers. Satan is gone. Revelation 17 and 18 say that this evil world system has already been destroyed. It's symbolized by Babylon. It will be an unprecedented time of spiritual vibrancy. No Satan, no demons, no evil world system to influence people away from God. The entire population will be made up of people who are born of God. The government will be ruled by King Jesus, and He will rule righteously and with a rod of iron. There can be no better environment in which a person is raised to love and fear God and to avoid wickedness. Now let me ask you a question. Where do millennial kingdom babies come from? And the correct answer is, go ask your mom. Right? But think about what kinds of categories of people that we have here. We have Old Testament saints who are in their glorified bodies. And once we are glorified, we will not be married nor given in marriage. We will not have the ability to procreate. So it's not them. It's not the church saints. The church saints will be in their glorified bodies. The tribulation martyrs or those who have died during the tribulation. They will have their glorified bodies. So none of them can procreate. But you do have some tribulation survivors. People who are genuine believers because they cannot enter the kingdom unless they're born again. But they still will be married and be able to marry during the millennial kingdom. And they'll also be able to produce children. And so consider this. A married couple who survives the tribulation has the first baby in the millennial kingdom. This child is born in the best of circumstances. No Satan, no demons, no evil world system. We're stripping all these externals away just to, to, to illustrate this. No unbelievers at all. Jesus, King Jesus has destroyed all those who have opposed him in Revelation 14 and 16. King Jesus is the governor. He's reigning on David's throne. Schools and communities are the best that they could ever be. Everyone living is a believer in Jesus Christ. The majority of people are glorified in their glorified bodies, unable to sin. It's much like the Garden of Eden, only better, because Satan's not there. Now, with that picture in mind, it's hard to imagine a a better environment in which to avoid wickedness. Look at verse 7. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. Satan is released from the abyss, to deceive the nations. And they come to fight against King Jesus and his followers, but fire comes down from heaven and devours them. And Satan is thrown into the lake of fire, and then the great resurrection takes place when all the remaining graves are opened to stand before God at the great white throne judgment to be judged before uh, before they are finally judged. They'll, they'll be judged for their rejection of the Son. 
So what happened? We had such a beautiful situation at the beginning of the Millennial Kingdom. How is it possible that we have a whole nation, whole group of people who rebel against King Jesus during the Millennial Kingdom? All these people from Adam to the end of the church age to to the end of the tribulation, at least with the tribulation, they all have glorified bodies. None of them could have been part of that group. The people who who were believers during the tribulation could not have been part of that group. But there will be hundreds and thousands and perhaps millions of babies that will be born during the millennial kingdom. But just like everyone who is in Adam, they are all born spiritually what? Dead. They need what you and I needed, who were born into a corrupt world occupied by evil and its leaders. They need the work of regeneration. They need the Spirit to impart life to they who are spiritually dead. They need God to do a work to change them from darkness to light. But consider this, these rebels at the end of the Millennial Kingdom are people who were born into the millennial kingdom without the influence of Satan and his demons, without an evil world's system. And yet, they will turn away from Jesus as their king. They will not accept him as their Lord. Why? We've stripped everything external away. The only thing that's left is their wicked human hearts. Oh, they may conform externally for a while since nonconformity will be judged by Jesus. But eventually their true colors will come out and they will either build a community outside of the kingdom or they will rise up when Satan returns after having put on a facade. Friends, this is the power and the corruption of the human heart. We can grow up in the best environments with the best parents and the best community and the best school and the best government and the best king and still turn away from God. So I would suggest that this example from eschatology underscores my point. The only causative factor In a person's evil is his own sinful heart. Nothing outside of him can defile him. The reason that he's being defiled by those things outside, the reason why he's putting himself into those positions where he's being defiled is because he desires to be defiled. You see? There's already corruption flowing from the internal. The darkness of depravity is so dark that it blocks out some of the best means by which God brings light and truth. And so if we think that in counseling we can just give a few Bible verses and overpower something so corrupt, we're wrong. Ideally, we're working with believers and the veil has been removed. But the blindness can still be thick. And so we need to rely on God. So let me conclude by giving you four statements about ministering to the heart of individuals. If the heart is the culprit of wickedness, Let me give you four statements. Number one, if you're going to be an instrument of change, you must be convinced that the problem is the person's heart. 
If you're going to be an instrument of change, you must be convinced that the problem is the person's heart. Now, I have to begin with the qualification because not all counseling has to do with sin issues. Sometimes people come to you for premarital counseling or because there's a wisdom issue, job decision, college, whatever. Sometimes they come because they are innocent sufferers. Okay, so, so don't automatically go once and be like Job's friend. There must be something wrong with you. That's not what I'm talking about. I, let's set all those innocent things aside and focus on the main issues that you're going to be counseling people for, and that is marital conflict, addictions, unforgiveness, anxiety, rebellion, pride. When you're dealing with those kinds of things, you must be convinced that the problem is the person's heart. Until we realize this, we will be complicit with them in making excuses for why these things are happening. We will be complicit in helping them to explain away what Jesus would say is, why are you not doing what I told you to do? Why are you neglecting the commandment of God? Our society sees it a different way, don't they? Have you ever heard the phrase, hurt people, hurt people? Hurt people, and then verb, hurt people. They hurt other people. Well, that's not true. I can think of several examples from Scripture of people who are mistreated and abused, who are who, who, who still use their lives to serve God and others. I know of abuse victims who are serving the Lord in the church today. You see, that kind of statement, hurt people, hurt people, is an excuse. That comes from a bunch of psychologists who sit around looking at why a serial murderer is the way that he is. They're looking for reasons. So they look to his childhood because that's what Freud told him to do. There must be something wrong with his relationship with his mommy. They find that the serial murderer was abused when he was a child and therefore hurt people hurt people. Or maybe he has the murder gene and we just don't have the technology to, to discover that yet. No, they committed murder because they willfully followed after their father, the devil. They chose to do it out of their own desires in their heart. You see, psychiatry is looking for biological causes for what the Bible calls sin. That's why they come up with their Bible, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Mental Disorders because it's the only way for them to diagnose someone where there is no pathology. There are no medical exams that says you've tested positive for OCD or you've tested positive for major depressive disorder. There are no tests that can be run in that way, and so they come up with a list of questions. In the most recent DSM, you can find a number of what they call disorders for things that we would describe as clear sin. Like hypersexual disorder. People with an uncontrollable addiction for sex. 
or alcohol use disorder, excessive uncontrollable drinking, or disruptive mood dysregulation disorder, also known as DMD disorder. I'm not sure if there's any coincidence that it matches our pastor's initials, but I'll give the description and you be the judge. DMD disorder is people with severe temper tantrums defined as extreme explosive rages, often associated with playing hockey or long waits in McDonald's drive through <laughs> I may be looking for a job. <laughs> Psychiatrists are searching. There must be something in the biological makeup of their patients to make them this way. Patients come to them frustrated. They leave frustrated, and the psychiatrist is frustrated as well because they don't have answers. They can't figure out why people act the way that they do, so they describe it as a disorder. Now, I will admit that there are physical factors that can play a role in our sin, but I'm here to remind you today that the Scriptures are telling us that the reason for their sin is their heart. If people are given to extreme rage or uncontrollable drinking or enslavement to sexual sin or outbursts against their parents, they need work done in their heart. They may need a heart transplant from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh, but they certainly need work done on their heart. They need the Spirit to transform them by the renewing of their mind. Friends, the problem is inside Not in the biological makeup, but in the corrupt, immaterial part of the human, the soul. And if you're going to be an instrument of change, you must be convinced that the problem is the heart. Number two, if you're going to be an instrument of change, you must be convinced that the solution is found in the Scriptures. You must be convinced that the solution is found in the Scriptures. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And at the end of that verse, we kind of throw up our hands, but but we should read on, because the next verse says, The Lord searches the heart. And the answer to dealing with sinful hearts is to take people to the perfect law of liberty and show them the Word. Use it like James talks about it, pointing it at them like a mirror so that they see themselves for who they are. Show them what it says. Show them how to apply it to their lives. Last night we were reminded by Pastor Bob of the great power of the Word to pierce hearts and to bring life to the dead. And so if we're not using the Scriptures, we're not helping. James 1.25 says that when we do this, we, they will be an effectual doer, and this man will be blessed in what he does. If you're going to be an instrument of change, you must understand that the problem is the human heart and that the solution is in the Scriptures. Number three, if you're going to be an instrument of change, you must understand what is going on. Proverbs 20, verse 5 says, The heart of a man is like deep waters, and the man of understanding draws it out. You see, it's not enough for us to just believe 
that the problem is the heart, or just enough to say that the scriptures have the answer, because what we could end up doing is, is be like a carnival barker, who's going around saying, the scriptures are sufficient, the scriptures are sufficient. And they're like, for what? We're like, for everything. Everything you need for life and godliness, the scriptures have the answers. And they say, well, help me with my suicidal thoughts. Help me with the loss of my wife that has left me in bed, too overwhelmed to even get up and make a meal. Help me with my paralyzing anxiety. Help me deal with my enslavement to pornography or my enslavement to alcohol. If we only have this general, nebulous confidence in the Scripture without understanding what's going on in the person and how we can actually use specific text to apply apply it to their lives, then we may end up just like a well-meaning theologian. We have lots of truth, lots of doctrine, but we don't know how to apply it. We just say, hey, you got to find it in the Scriptures, or you know, take these two verses and call me in the morning type thing. Part of helping people is understand, understanding what is going on and then giving specific help to those who are hurting because of their own sin or potentially when you're dealing with innocent sufferers because of someone else's. If we are only about conviction that the Scriptures are true, then we we may end up giving advice like a medical doctor who tells every single one of his patients, drink more water, get some exercise, and get some rest. Are any of those things wrong? Are any of those things unhelpful? No, those are all good. Right. So it's not that we're giving bad advice, but we're just not giving specific advice. To help someone requires wisdom. This is part of the skill of counseling that must be learned. And pastors, I'm sure you've learned a lot of this just by doing it. That's the nature of ministry, isn't it? You, you kind of learn it as you go. But there's always room for us to learn more. We need to work to understand the desires. How do we unpack or unmask the desires that are going on behind the actions? When you talk to people, they have all their reasons for why things are happening. And what you're doing is, is pushing beyond that, that surface level type stuff to moving to their heart. How do you do that? What kinds of questions can you ask in order to do that? How do we know what, what their specific treasure is? What is the lust of their heart? It's one of our main jobs as disciplers is to help expose what is going on in their heart because often they are deceived. We want to help show them what their ruling desires are. We want to help them reprioritize things in their lives. Help them have the right kinds of treasures. The challenge is that we can never see the heart, and so we are limited. But, again, the Lord is the one who searches the heart, so as we take what's going on in their lives, what they tell us about their thoughts, what they tell us about their actions, their words. We, we match that up to the Scriptures and see where they are off and then put them back on course. Our job is to look at the fruit and use the Scriptures to help illumine 
what is in their heart. Help give light to where there is darkness. If you're going to be an instrument of change, you must understand what is going on. Number four, if you're going to be an instrument of change, you need to understand the dynamic relationship between a person's heart and a person's actions. So, in counseling, if our approach is merely externalistic, I think we recognize that's a problem. If we're just focusing on the externals, it's like the, the Pharisees, right, with the, making sure that the cup looked nice. On the inside, it was completely dirty. So certainly that approach is wrong. But I don't think that Jesus is saying only focus on the internal. And I think it would be wrong for us as counselors, as pastors, as disciplers, to focus merely on the internal. Like you just got to change the way you think. You just got to change the way you act. Jesus checks their claim with their actions. So in other words, there's a dynamic relationship between the external and the internal. And in counseling, we want to focus on where the source is. So we want to focus on how the internal works towards the external or pushes out towards the external. So it would be wrong for us to say someone who's given to drunkenness, right? You know what? Let's just talk about some scriptures and how you can love God more and, and things like that. Those are That is critical. We need to work on their heart. But we also need to cut off the wrong ac- actions, the sinful actions. And so there's this relationship that's working. So in other words, we, we understand the person's heart by looking at fruit, and we help them to produce fruit by using the scriptures to shape their heart. Friends, the depravity of mankind is so wicked that it can block out the bright light of the glory of the gospel at times. But the power of the gospel can pierce through the darkest darkness and transform a wicked heart into a heart that receives and responds to God's word. And there is nothing more central to your corruption and the corruption of the people that you're working with than your own sinful heart. Because that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. And only the scriptures have the power to transform our corrupt hearts. They're like a sword that cut us all the way to the core, even down to the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And if we're going to change, if we're going to help other people change, we have to go after the heart. Praise God, He has given us the resources that we need to do that. Let's pray. Father, we pray that You would help us to watch out for our own hearts. Help us to guard our own hearts with all diligence. To watch ourselves and our own doctrine. And then use us as instruments in your hands to point people to the Scriptures as the means to change their wicked hearts. Father, we need your help in this. In Jesus' name, amen.